Well, we want to welcome all of you, especially those of you who are streaming online. Uh, please let us know how that works in your comment section. But we want to encourage you, Lord, with the words of our Lord Jesus from John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 27. These are the words of our Lord Jesus on the night before he was going to be betrayed and before his own crucifixion. He met with his disciples in the upper room, and they were very distressed at hearing that he was no longer going to be with them, and he says these words to them to give them comfort during a time of uncertainty. Because they had followed him for the past three years, he had always been there to meet their every need. He had been there to comfort and encourage them. He had been there to give them strength and power. And yet, they were anxious and worried, and he gives them these words in John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our time in the Word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray once again that you would grant to us your peace, that supernatural peace that surpasses and transcends all understanding. We pray, God, that you would grant to us understanding from your word, encouragement, that we might cling to you, our Lord and Savior. May you open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and mighty things from your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, these are certainly unprecedented times. This past week, I was on the phone with Comcast, our internet service. I was telling them how we were streaming our church services now, and I wanted to make sure our bandwidth was up to snuff. And the customer service agent was over in Denver, and I was explaining to him that these times we're unprecedented for the Seattle area. Seattle would be the epicenter, at least in the United States, for the coronavirus outbreak. And the customer service agent said to me, something to the effect was, quote, this is a bit off the subject, but isn't this one of the signs of the end times? <laughs> and I told him I had just preached on that two weeks ago, but there is no doubt that this is the number one subject in the world today, the coronavirus COVID-19. It is a virus that is particularly dangerous. It is a virus that is particularly dangerous towards those who are elderly or have underlying health conditions. And it has been the cause of tremendous anxiety within our society and the world. It is front and center on every news broadcast. It is front and center on everyone's minds whether it is one's health or whether it is the stock market, or whether it is stocking up on food and supplies, there's a sense of anxiety, a sense of worry. Yesterday morning, someone sent me pictures of the crowds that have been waiting to get into Costco that were long out the door. One woman had been waiting an hour, hour and a half before the doors even opened 
Those of you who have been to the grocery store or Costco know that there is a buying frenzy. I came across an article recently that was entitled, The Psychology Behind Why Toilet Paper, of all things, is the latest coronavirus panic buy. And it is by CNN, which says something to the effect of, it says, quote, masks were the first things to go, then hand sanitizers. And you think maybe that's just in this area? Well, it says retailers in the U.S. and Canada have started limiting the number of toilet paper packs customers can buy. Supermarkets in the U.K. are sold out. Grocery stores in Australia have hired security guards to patrol customers. And it goes on to give a number of reasons, but I found the fifth reason quite interesting. In fact, I heard that fifth reason on the world news last night on NBC, and it was this, quote, it allows some people to feel a sense of control. The people who are stocking up on supplies are thinking about themselves and their families and what they need to do to prepare, Taylor said. Not healthcare workers, sick people, or even regular folks. But people only act that way, the article says, out of fear. Fishhoff said that preparing, even by purchasing toilet paper, returns a sense of control to what seems like a helpless situation, unquote. And I'm sure many of you feel that way, a sense of anxiety, a sense of worry, but retail therapy, I'm telling you, will not solve your anxiety issue. So what can we do? How can we respond? What does the scripture say? What helps in these times of anxiety? How can we deal with these in a world that seems to be spinning out of control for many people? What are the lessons that are to be learned during this time of distress? Well, there are many lessons that we can learn, but I'd like to point out seven particular responses, seven lessons, and seven helpful things that will help us through a time that is so very uncertain in our country, in fact, in our world today. The first is that we are to remember that God is always and will be in control. Our sovereign God always and will be in control. When the world seems to be falling apart, God is in control. When the stock market plunges, God is in control. When there are fights at supermarkets or Costco, God is always in control. When people are short-tempered, impatient, God is always in control. Even when you begin to run low on food or supplies, God is still and always will be in control. Even over all of the decisions that we choose to make, God will be in control. As Proverbs 16.9 says, it is man who plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And Proverbs 20.24 20, tells us, a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. And while we think we may plan and prepare for all of these contingencies, it will be ultimately God who directs our lives. It is called the doctrine of concurrence, where we choose to do what we are going to do, and yet God in his sovereignty directs and conducts all of life, and nothing is beyond the control of God. God works behind the scenes in a mysterious way to cause all things to come to his purposes in his way, even our well-being and even in calamity. Isaiah 45, 7 through 9, God declares, I form light and create darkness. I make 
well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him, who forms it? What are you making? Your work has no handles? It is the same God who blesses, the same God who grants light that also creates darkness. It is the same God who blesses us with health and blesses us with comfort that also brings in what we would call natural disasters, from tsunamis to earthquakes to disease, other things. All are ultimately under the control of God, and nothing is beyond God's control. And God does not answer to us, as it says Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? God does what he does because he is the creator of all things and he has the prerogative to do whatever he so wishes. The word calamity there in Isaiah 45, 7 is also the same word in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who has spoken And it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? And the rhetorical answer to that question is, man has no right to complain. And nothing comes to pass that is not under the control of God. All things are under the control of God, and God will and always shall be under control. He will control whatever He so desires because He is a sovereign God, and God causes all things to come to pass, as Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What is that good that that Bible verse talks about? In verse 29 of Romans 8, it talks about the good of Christ-likeness. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That good is that our conformity to Christ-likeness will come to pass And anything that happens, it will be for our ultimate good as His children and God's ultimate glory. Everything will be under God's sovereign control. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is an English pastor in the 19th century, also known as the Prince of Preachers, said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to His children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, they believe that sovereignty hath ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation." the kingship of God over all the works of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit on that 
throne, unquote. God has ordained this time of distress. God is not the one who sins. God is never the one who sins. God does not sin. God cannot be tempted. But God, as we have seen in the past couple of weeks when we've looked at the book of Revelation, does bring about calamity. And we remember even in that calamity, God is in control when our world seems out of control. So our comfort comes from understanding and knowing that God is the one who will always be in control. Secondly, we are to trust God for the future. We are to trust God for the future. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet whose name was Habakkuk. And Habakkuk saw the corruption, he saw the violence, he saw the injustice among the people of Judah. He asked God, God, why do you allow this injustice to continue? Why do you allow the wicked to continue to prosper? Why is it that those who are righteous seem to be downtrodden? Why are they beaten down and what are you going to do about it? Are you going to let this continue on? And in the book of Habakkuk, God answers and he tells Habakkuk, I will do something about this. I am going to bring the Chaldeans, the enemy of Israel, to come to punish them for their sin, to punish Judah. And Habakkuk, when he hears God respond in that way, he uh, responds with utter shock. He is shocked. He is dismayed. Why? Because... The Chaldeans were an even worse and even more wicked people than Judah. For the people of God had turned away from God and they were in sin, and yet these others didn't even know God, and they were more wicked, and they would come and they would turn Judah into a slaughterhouse. They would come, they would kill, they would maim, they would raid, they would plunder. Everything would be devastated. And Habakkuk says, why would you take a more wicked nation to do something like this? And God says, in effect, in chapter 3, they will do, they too, they too will come under my judgment for their sin and their rebellion. And he responds to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. In other words, God will do what he will do. Whatever he chooses to do, he will do for purposes that perhaps are beyond our understanding. So how does Habakkuk respond? In Habakkuk chapter 3, if you look in your Old Testament, he's one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, it reads this way. Habakkuk writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet and made me walk on my high places. The expression of Habakkuk is this. No matter what happens, if there is no fruit on the tree, if there is no food in the fields, if there is no animals in the stall, if 
Everything would be laid desolate if all would be taken away. I still will exalt God because he is the God of my salvation. He is the one who saved me. He is the one who gives me strength. And he is the one I will worship forever. It does not matter whether anything, anything lives. No fruit on the vine, no olives on the trees. No animals in the stall, no fields that are ripe for harvest. I will still trust in the Lord. If I lose everything, I will still worship because you saved me. You gave me salvation. You give me strength each day. If we were to lose everything, would we say, that's all right. God is in control. And I will worship the Lord because he is my salvation. Can you imagine that? Would that happen to you? Would you respond in that way? If your retirement accounts were never to return, if your businesses were never to recover, if your health were never to be the same again, would we respond in the same way as Habakkuk said, yet, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. So we need to remember that God is always in control. Secondly, we need to trust God in all things and in the future. Thirdly, calamity reminds us to invest in heavenly treasure. Calamity reminds us to invest in heavenly treasure. The financial impact upon this world is unparalleled, really. The entertainment industry, the tourism industry, the airline industry, every facet of our world's economy is affected. Small business owners are closing shops. Some don't even know if they'll recover. Restaurant owners, companies all suffer losses, and some may even lose, like I mentioned, their business and have already. That has been a devastating impact upon a number, a number of people. But calamity brings with us the reminder, the reminder of where our heavenly treasure lies. Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, probably the greatest sermon ever to be given, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he tells the people, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When calamity comes, it reminds us to invest ourselves, our time, our resources, our money towards things that will matter for eternity towards spiritual things, towards the blessing of others, towards God's kingdom. Fourthly, not only are we to remember that God is in control, to trust Him for the future, to remember that our heavenly treasure is forevermore, and fourthly, be thankful for what we do have rather than be angry over what we've lost. Be thankful for what we do have rather than be angry over what we've lost. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 1 Thessalonians 5.18 reminds us, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, the precedent for this particular command in the book of 1 Thessalonians comes from the Old Testament. This passage was given as a reminder of what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was the thank offering, or also known as the peace offering, Leviticus 3, 1 to 7, Leviticus 7, verse 11 to 36. And that thank offering or peace offering was given to the people as a reminder, as a reminder for them to be grateful to God for all things. And what they would do is they would bring a sheaf of grain, they would bring some oil, they would bring some wine as a thank offering. These were the things of the earth that God had given to them. They were to be reminded that this was from God. They were symbols of God's blessing, of God's abundance. These were thank offerings that were to be given to him regularly for his grace, for his mercy upon all their lives. And the church today has an ordinance that serves that same purpose at communion or the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table, we call it. We combine elements of the thank offering that was given as well as the sin offering of the Old Testament, and we thank God for all that He has done. In Christ's suffering, His death, and His resurrection, which has been accomplished, that bread and the wine are symbolic of the body and the blood of the Lord, but they are also elements and reminders of our sin, and we give thanks to God for the sacrifice of Christ. So we observe this ordinance. We are essentially presenting a thank offering to God for Christ's suffering, His death, His resurrection, looking forward to that time when He will come again. And the Apostle Paul in Writing this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, is given to, the, uh, given to the believer that they are to be in gratitude, connected not with the things that are here on earth, but to give thanks for the future, for Christ's salvation, for his, his, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, no matter how pleasant, no matter how difficult, we can give thanks to God. Ephesians 5.18 reiterates that command to be grateful. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, it says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. No matter what your life situation is, there is always an underlying reason to give thanks to God because of Christ who gave his life for us. A number of years ago, there was a severe fire that hit Southern California. And the Associated Press reporter reported on this. And that fire in Southern California was north of Los Angeles all the way to the Mexican border. 500,000 acres, a half billion acres were, half a million acres, I should say, were burned. And up to half a million people displaced from their communities. 2,000 homes were destroyed. But in Rancho Bernardo, in which there was a Presbyterian church, there were 60 families who had lost their homes. What they did was worshipers gathered together. 
And one reporter noted, quote, they gave thanks for the big things, for lives saved, families, friendships. They also gave thanks for small things, a hug, a shoulder to cry on. Barbara Borden was one of those fire victims, and she was able to salvage about three boxes of photographs and her grandfather's cuckoo clock, but she too was thankful. The article says that no one was hurt, neither in her family nor in her community. On the Saturday before the Sunday service, in which they gave thanks, she was looking through her home's ashes, and she discovered a sundial that her husband had given to her. And the following message was engraved on that sundial. It said, Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. She mused, that says it all, doesn't it? We have a lot to be thankful for. Because as Christians, we have a lot to look forward to. The best is yet to be when Christ will come again to take us home. And we can be grateful for what Christ has promised to us. So we remember that God is in control. We trust him for the future. We invest ourselves in heavenly treasure. We're thankful in all circumstances. And fifthly, we're to fix our minds on the word of God. We are to remember to fix our minds on the Word of God. And the Bible continually reminds us of this in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Or the psalmist in Psalm 1 who says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his Word he meditates day and night. And Joshua 1.8 tells us, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, as Joshua tells the people of Israel, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Psalm 119 is full of admonitions to dwell on the Word of God, to fix our minds on the Word of God, to remember the Word of God, to think through it, to meditate on it day and night all of the time. It's easy for some whose Bibles might read in Fox News chapter 1 verse 1 or CNN chapter 3 verse 15 or Seattle Times page A1 And all day long, flipping from channel to channel, especially with our phones, which have pop-up news stories, every news story is about the same thing. And our minds are no longer fixated on the Word of God and what takes over the meditation of our heart is, where can I get more soft soap refills? Or I'm running out of paper towels? Or do I have enough cases of water? Or Costco is out of rice. My mother sent me to get rice. I told her there's no more brown rice. This past week, I'd been reading and watching so much news, and the more I read, the more I felt unsettled, and so I decided I was going to just take a walk, and so I put on my jacket and went outside, and I began to take a walk, and as soon as I was outside, it was a huge blessing, because I live about a block away from this new middle school, and they were playing music outside, and the kids were playing and screaming, and the thought came to me later that, you know what, these kids, as they're playing, you know, they're They they might be racing. They're thinking about who's going to get the ball first or who's going to get to the goal line or who's going to win this particular. They're not worried about the future at that moment in time, I'm sure. It all brought a sense of normality, all because of what was in their minds at that time. Rather than fixing our minds and all of the worries and concerns of the world and flipping through all of the news that so easily presents to us, We're to fix our minds on the Word of God if we're going to have peace. 
We're to fix our minds on the Word of God if we're going to have wisdom as to what to do. Are we sad because we're homebound, because you have a little bit of anxiety being cooped up in your home? This is a blessing, an opportunity perhaps to read your Bible more, to pray more, to sing more, to spend that family time more. This is an opportune time to read all of those Christian books that somebody has bought for you and to blow the dust off of them that you thought you were going to read and finally after 10 years you're thinking about giving away. It's time to read. An opportune time to perhaps hone your skills in music. Our worship team would love to have more musicians. We were to remember that God is in control, to trust God for the future, to invest in heavenly treasure, to be thankful, to fix our minds on the Word of God. Sixthly, to confess the sin of worry and anxiety. To confess the sin of worry and anxiety. Jesus, on his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 25, verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And then verse 34, so... Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now in this passage, Jesus is not, he is not addressing the normal cares and concerns of everyday life. He is not saying you no longer need to tell your kids uh, that they shouldn't play in the street, or you don't need to put on your seatbelt, or you can eat all of the saturated fat that you want. He's not saying of those normal concerns that we have. He's talking about worry and anxiety. That word worry and anxiety comes from an old English word, worgen. And what that word means, it means to choke. It means to strangle. And he's talking about this type of worry that dominates the mind, that dominates the heart, that chokes out clear thinking. It is the worry that distracts. It is the worry that takes away our peace. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And what Jesus is doing is he is not making a suggestion. He is not making a recommendation. He is telling us in the words that are here, do not worry. This is a command. It is imperative. A number of times in this passage, he commands us, do not worry. Do not be anxious. Worrying is sinful. So to overcome our anxiety, or to overcome our worry, we need to confess it as sin and ask God to help us not to worry, to trust in God. If God will take care of the birds, He will take care of you. He'll take care of the future as well. He will take care of all of these things because God loves His children. He loves you and your family. He does not want you to worry, but to trust in Him. Remember that God is in control. We trust God for the future. We invest ourselves in heavenly things. We need to be thankful. We need to fix our minds on the Word of God. We need to confess our sin of worry and anxiety. And seventh, we are to be at peace with God and ask of God for peace. 
We're to be at peace with God and ask of God for peace. Peace, first and foremost, comes from God. You can have all the money in the world and yet be not at peace. You can be married and not be at peace. You can have a nice family and yet not be at peace. You can have a secure job and yet not be at peace. Why? Because this world, in this world, we know that all things are not secure. And all those things can melt away in an instant, in a very short period of time. So, the question is, do you have peace, first of all, with God? That is the passage that we read this morning. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, his disciples were very anxious and worried, and Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. My peace, he says, I give to you. Not as the world gives. The world wants to give peace. The world wants to give peace in what they call financial security. The world wants to give peace in various things of the supply chain. Or they want to give peace by their words, but their promises may or may not come to pass because we know that this world, nothing is secure except for God. This was a supernatural peace that only God can give, and that peace comes from God. One person I spoke with earlier this week said to me, you know, if I get the coronavirus and I die, that's fine with me. I'm ready. I'm ready to go home. Are you ready? Are you ready if you were to pass away today? Are you ready? Are you at peace with God? Have you turned from your sin and given your life over to Jesus, believing in faith that He is the Son of God who came and suffered and died and was raised from the dead for your sins? Have you trusted in Him to save you who is a sinner and only God can give you salvation and forgiveness of your sins? Only then will you have peace with God. But maybe you are a Christian and sometimes that peace is not always there when we have anxiety. Not only are we to be at peace with God, but we're to ask God for that abiding peace. For it tells us in Philippians 4, 5 to 7, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, Paul writes to the Philippians. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious for anything, the Scriptures tell us. But in everything, give thanks. Present your requests to God, casting your cares upon Him because He cares for you, 1 Peter 5.7. Surrender your cares and concerns to Him, and that peace which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, will guard your minds in the Lord Jesus. When everything is collapsing around you, when this world seems to be out of control, only God can give you that type of peace. Remember that God is in control. Trust in God for the future. Invest yourselves in heavenly treasures. Be grateful. Be grateful to God. Fix your mind on the Word of God. Confess your sin of worry and anxiety and be at peace with God and ask of God 
for his peace. And only then will you be able to find that peace that will navigate your heart and lives through a difficult, calamitous time that we're all facing today. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks because you are a God of peace. We give you thanks, O God, because you are a God who is in control. We give you thanks, O God, because you are a God who grants to us life and breath that we might bring you glory and that we might invest ourselves in the things that will matter for eternity. We give you thanks, O God, for the small things as well as the big things. For we ask, O God, that you would grant to us that peace as we cast our cares and our anxieties upon you, that you would surround our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus with your supernatural peace. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.